Welcome back to Campbell Conversations with your host, Colin Campbell. And today is episode 235 of the podcast, and I'm joining conversation by David Robson. David is an award-winning science writer specializing in the extremes of human behavior, body, and brain. Our expectations have a profound effect on the outcomes that we get in life. And today's episode is going to help you unlock how you can use your expectations to improve the big areas in life that you truly care about. You can expect to learn why your brain is a prediction machine, how the placebo effect and the lesser known nocebo effect shapes your outcomes, how people with no gluten intolerance can have a gluten reaction after eating a meal that has no gluten in it, why French people can eat a less healthy lifestyle and diet than Americans but live longer, and how your thoughts can have more impact on the athletic performance you have beyond your own genetics. This genuinely blew my mind. The power of the mind is something that a lot of us want to tap into. The kind of people like you and I that listen to a self-development podcast on a weekly basis, there's so much untapped potential. And what you're about to learn with David is something you're going to immediately be able to access and action yourself. Before we dive into the episode, I want to say a massive thank you for the continued support for the podcast. If you're new here or you just haven't done so yet, make sure you've hit that follow or subscribe button. It really does help the show. It helps me get fantastic guests like David and some of the other amazing guests I've got coming up. And we've also been doubling up on our episodes recently. I hope you've been enjoying the fact that we've both had Sunday and Wednesday uploads. And that is the plan to continue for the foreseeable future as long as you guys keep supporting, sharing the show with friends and family and work colleagues and growing our audience. And I'm excited to share that if you too want to unlock the power and potential of podcasting to grow your personal brand, your network, and your business in 2024, then my podcast masterclass is for you. I have built the perfect video learning platform for you to start, scale, and sustain your own podcast using my systems, my processes, the ways to get the best guests in your niche, to record like a pro, and how to market and distribute to the maximum number of eyes and ears for your show. The link will be in the show and it's mypodcastmasterclass.thinkific.com. Now that's quite enough for me for now. You've got just under an hour with myself and David Robson after the music plays. For, for today's conversation, I really want to go back and understand what got you interested in the first place in the role that our expectations play in the outcomes in our lives. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of that book had been brewing for, you know, years. Um, It was probably about nine years ago, actually, that I really started getting excited about the expectation effect. Um, And that came, it was kind of just this convergence of of two different parts of my life. Professionally, I was, you know, working as a science writer and covering the placebo effect, which I think most of us know kind of roughly what that is. It's where our positive expectations bring about um, better outcomes in medicine. Um, But I also discovered there was this kind of evil twin of the placebo effect, which is the nocebo effect. And that's where your expectations of kind of certain symptoms can actually manifest and become real. So if you expect to have headaches from the pills you're taking, you can actually start to develop migraines. And that's actually reflected in your physiology. It's not just imagined pain. So you can see difference in things like the um, vasculature within the brain. Um, now, uh, I was kind of researching that piece, but at the same time, I was going through quite a rough patch in my personal life and I'd been given some antidepressant pills and my uh, GP you know, was obliged to kind of warn me about potential side effects. And one of those was the fact that these pills could give some patients migraines and like almost immediately I started getting these splitting headaches that were really you know made it really hard to focus on work um but because I was writing that piece at the time I kind of realized that maybe that was just kind of the negative expectations that had come from the encounter with my doctor um so I looked into it and I saw actually from the clinical trials of of these pills that seemed to be the most likely option like you could actually see when people were taking a placebo um, antidepressant, believing it was these pills, they still got those bad headaches. Um, and it was really transformative for me because just having that knowledge and understanding um, helped the pain to just go away. And it's not like I was repeating any kind of mantra to myself. You know, it wasn't like magical thinking. It was just that scientific knowledge, actually, that this that the pain might not be inevitable. Um, it just kind of evaporated over the course of the day. Um, and ever since then, I was you know, gathering all of this 
information like whenever I came across a new paper that showed an expectation effect I I kind of put it to one side um, created this big folder on my laptop and eventually I realized that there was you know a book there um, telling the whole story of you know how expectation effects are not just important in medicine but also in our private lives in like our health and fitness our diets um, even how you know how long we live and how quickly we age can be affected by our expectations and that just seemed miraculous to me i think that's why it's such an exciting book in terms of how many different areas of our life it touches across from a personal perspective you were pushed to explore it potentially from a, a health perspective which is is foundational to, to to how we to how we live but when you've brought all these studies to the fore within your book there's so many different areas that it touches across and i think that's why in particular, this piece of work is something that you'll continue to be invited to talk about on podcasts because people really realize, oh, if I have a level of empowerment, and I think that's something that a lot of us are seeking in day-to-day life, then my thoughts really can be, and I think one of the terms you use in the book is like a prediction machine. And that is a really, really positive feeling to have when you have an element of mastery or control over some of the outcomes that you have in life, albeit, of course, not all of them. Yeah, that's exactly how I see it, is that we are constantly being shaped by expectation effects. We just might not be conscious of that fact. Uh, You know, initially, I wasn't conscious of the fact that I was being shaped by the expectations my doctor had created. Um, But then having this knowledge, like having this new understanding, it does empower us so that we can turn those expectation effects to our advantage. Um, Like you said, you know, the brain is a prediction machine. So it's actually fundamental to the way we've evolved to process information is the fact that the brain is constantly creating simulations of the world around us, of the events it thinks are most likely to happen, and then kind of preparing the body for the challenges that it thinks it's going to face. And as humans, what makes us different is the fact that we have this consciousness and we have things like language that can shape those expectations profoundly but we also then have the the possibility to consciously change our expectations and to to um to really make the most of this um so yeah that's why i'm so excited about it absolutely and when you were talking about the expectation effect my understanding is it has three different major mechanisms that it, it acts upon what are those uh yeah so it's uh changes to our perception and we can see this in kind of visual illusions. So when Notre Dame was burning, um, some people thought that they saw the um, uh, the figure of Christ in the flames. Now, I don't want to take away from people's religious experiences, but um, from a scientific perspective, we would say that that was an expectation effect that was changing our perception. That Actually, the expectation that there might be some kind of spiritual phenomenon there was changing the way that the brain processed um, the image, um, the information coming in from our retina, and kind of created that, that sense that there was a real figure there. Um, but then it can also change our behavior, and that is really important as well and shouldn't be dismissed. So if you have higher expectations of your fitness, for example, you're more likely to exercise, um, which is a good thing um, to happen to us. Uh, But finally, it can also change our physiology. So when we have certain expectations, um, as I found with the expectation of experiencing a headache, that can actually do things like change the balance of chemicals within your brain, uh, your hormones, the um, cardiovascular system, the nervous system, you know, all of these are controlled by the brain, essentially. And we shouldn't dismiss those physiological changes because they can be very profound and they can actually push us towards recovery from an illness or they can push us towards further sickness. The first time when you're introduced to something like this, it is striking that it can impact across those three different areas because sometimes you assume, oh, how could, how could my expectation that these these pills may give me a headache how could that possibly change legitimately how my brain is reacting in terms of its chemistry or 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 its its physiology that is quite a stark realization for some people listening to this they're like oh so my expectation that i'm going to be nervous before this speech it actually becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because of the way that my body reacts to the term nervous for example Mm, yeah, exactly. And so like, um, it seems kind of miraculous. And I certainly don't want to suggest that, you know, that we can perform like actual miracles with, um, say, you know, like the 
there's some idea on some parts, you know, in some parts of the internet that like positive thinking can cure cancer, for example. Well, you know, I don't think there is a plausible mechanism how that would work. Um, but we do know there are lots of specific mechanisms by which the brain can influence our physiology. And so I'm really in the book kind of focusing on those well-explored, well-determined mechanisms. But yeah, you know, the obvious example of this is um, if you think about your favorite food and you, you know, you you kind of know it's close by, like your mouth starts watering and your stomach starts rumbling. Well, that's actually the fact that your body is preparing all of these enzymes to digest the food. Um, there's nothing mysterious about that. We expect that to happen. Um, similarly, you know, if you know that you've just been out for a meal and then someone uh, that was eating with you becomes violently sick, that can create a feeling of nausea and might make you vomit as well. Again, that's often just an expectation effect because it could be that um, the food was totally fine that you ate. Um, so we accept food poisoning by osmosis. You've uh, even you've inherited somebody's right. food poisoning because you you assume that you must have had the same challenge. That's it, and it makes evolutionary sense because if there was some pathogen in that food. Um, it makes sense for you to kind of expel it before it's caused damage to your digestive system too. Um, but, you know, I'm not really talking about any mechanisms that are more, you know, surprising than that in a way. It's just we don't fully acknowledge or use them to our advantage. And so you mentioned this um, stress expectation effect. There's actually our interpretation of stress that can really determine kind of how we respond to a new challenge. Um and, you know, I think like in our culture, we're really fed a lot of, um, uh, like, I don't want to say that it's misinformation, but I think like um, we're given a one-sided view of stress as being this kind of really deadly, debilitating thing that we have to kind of suppress and get rid of through, you know, all kinds of techniques, including, say, uh, mindfulness or distraction. But actually, the, the truth is that um, stress is neither good or bad, but it's really our interpretation that can determine how it affects our performance and how it affects our health. And so what the research shows is that actually if you recognize that stress can be um, can be adaptive, that actually those butterflies in your stomach can help to motivate you, that your heart is racing because it's pumping oxygen to your brain, which is good to, to help your thinking, and that kind of jangling feeling and in your body is actually kind of keeping you alert and and um, on the ball. Um, you know, just recognizing, just teaching people those very basic facts to kind of learn to appreciate their stress actually changes not only their performance at difficult challenges like, you know, super hard exams or public speaking, but it also changes some of the physiological factors too. So um, for example, with those cardiovascular changes, the racing heart, well, if you have the positive view of stress you're still going to feel that, but afterwards um, you recover more quickly. So you go back to a more relaxed way of being um, than if you had the negative view of stress and you saw it as being something inherently dangerous for you. And then that in that turn was something that stood out for me, David, because yeah. the whole um, concept that really hit me was it not only is your stress readying you to perform for a public speech, for example, it's quickening your heart rate, as you said, it's allowing more blood to go to the brain so you can be more cognitively sharp or nimble, you can be more articulate, whatever phrases you want to use. In reverse, if you interpret nerves or excitement as a, as a negative thing, it might make you fumble your words, it might make you stutter or, 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 or not be able to get your words out in the way that you want to. And what I love is that the after effect, as you said, if you've interpreted those feelings as potentially a performance enhancer or a sharpener of some sort, you don't have it almost as like a strain afterwards. Everyone knows that kind of feeling like that post-event slump after whatever it's mm. been. But you can lessen that, as you've explained, by interpreting the feelings that were getting you, quote-unquote, up for the event as positive yeah. rather than potentially negative. And that, for me, is just staggering how powerful the mind can be, not just in the moment and in the event, but thereafter. Yeah, that's exactly it. And, you know, it's changing things like the hormones you're releasing too. So um, if you have a negative view of um, stress as being like debilitating, you, you're going to have like that really sharp uh, peak in cortisol, the stress hormone. Um, but it's not really accompanied by any other hormones. Whereas if you um, have the positive view of stress, it also comes with this kind of peak in the um, uh 
uh, we call them anabolic hormones, things like testosterone or DHEAS, um, these things that actually help your body to to deal with the kind of uh, the wear and tear that might have occurred during the stressful events. So it's really the relationship, the ratio of those hormones that actually matters for the long-term effects of your stress. And you just have a healthier ratio if you've got the positive view of aging, of um, stress. So yeah, it's really, you know, it's affecting how you are in the moment. And then, like you said, it's kind of affecting the uh, the aftermath of the stressful It's event. a ripple effect, it's is, not just at the time. Yeah. Exactly. And then, you know, if you are going through daily stresses, but you're always kind of recovering much better, then that's going to help you to live a, a healthier life in the long term than someone who's not really having that um, that kind of time to recharge between the stressful events. Undoubtedly. And you mentioned from an evolutionary standpoint, that was a term that's very related to all these behaviors that we're thinking about. And from an evolutionary standpoint, even nowadays in 2024, we have a a bias towards negativity and a, a relative amount of cynicism because we feel it's like a protective mechanism for us and it can hinder our expectations and I know you've really railed against maybe somebody continually erring on the side of just like oh that, that that's a negative thing because as you've explained there if we view our feelings and our emotions and our like the things that are coming up for us like stress as negative straight away it becomes, as you've explained, a self-fulfilling prophecy that is bound to happen, like we cannot avoid it then. Right, exactly. Um, you know, like it would be unlikely that we would have evolved any kind of response um, if it was purely negative, because it has to serve a purpose. And I think in the past, people had said, well, fine, you know, like the fight or flight response was useful when we were running away from predators, but it's not useful now in the workplace. And there's an element of truth in that. But I also think, that's still too binary because actually, so with something like stress, you know, it's not a question of either you're like super relaxed or you're in the fight or flight response. There's actually lots of gradations of stress. And the idea is that actually, if you take a positive view of stress, you're you're not really going to go into fight or flight. You're just going to be in one of those lower gradations where it can be adaptive and useful without being dangerous. Um, and that's true for all kinds of negative emotions, you know, things like disappointment, um, general kind of sadness, frustration, you know, all of these emotions are there, they hold a message, they serve a purpose, uh, but we just need to recognize that fact rather than fighting against them. And once you actually see them as an essential part of living, um, the uh, a ton of psychological research shows that actually um, they hold less for sway over our lives. So actually the people who accept negative feelings as being important messages, they tend to have better mental health in the long term than the people who really try to suppress those feelings. That was one of the key things that I learned from you, where if you immediately associate every every term with a negative, then that's of course what's going to be the case. And you can actively cause yourself more stress and have worse effects from any feeling that shows up by automatically assuming that it's going to be a bad thing. Whereas if, as you said, if you maybe view it as a, as a gradient and like a, a somewhere along a chart, it's not always necessarily at a hundred where you are going to feel the worst effects of it. Some of it could be at a very slight level, which can be a, a, an actual positive outcome for you if you choose to do so. Exactly. So I'd say if you are having these kind of negative feelings at like 100 on that scale, like you need you do need to get help. And like, you know, I don't want to diminish people's suffering. Um, you know, I've had depression myself, like, it comes to a point where it's no longer serving a purpose for you. But I think the danger is that we catastrophize um, those negative feelings when actually we're not, they're not overwhelming us. And actually, the the process of catastrophizing them, the fear and shame that can come with feeling those emotions and the effort that we put into trying to suppress them, that ends up being worse for us than if we just accepted that they're kind of transient kind of parts of the emotional weather that we're experiencing that will pass once they've served their purpose. Yes. Some of the terms that guests I've spoken to who have dealt with and perhaps overcome elements of their anxiety have talked about a spiral. And it mm, makes total yeah. sense when you consider the expectation because if somebody's in an anxious spiral where I'm anxious about this particular event at work. I'm anxious about if it doesn't go well, I'll lose my job. I'm anxious about what that would mean for me financially. I'm anxious about what that would mean for my family and my dependents off the back of it. And you can see how they start to spiral out of control and these things start to compound as well and add up. And it all comes from that one initial expectation that 
this event is going to be difficult for me or I'm not going to be capable or I'm going to struggle with it. And then they've gone from zero to 100 very quickly, as we were explaining. Right. Yeah, that's exactly the problem. And, you know, fueling all of that is this belief that because I'm feeling stressed and worried is actually making it more likely that I'm going to go down all of that, you know, that path to kind of bankruptcy and destitution. Um, and we, that's what we want to do. We want to break that cycle, basically. So, you know, using tools from like cognitive behavioral therapy or um, acceptance and commitment therapy, you know, you can just try to question those assumptions and you can, um, you know, be try to be very objective and factual and say, you know, like if I was hearing my friend talking about this kind of event, you know, would I would I kind of tell them like, yeah, you know, this is a complete disaster? Or would I be able to see it a bit more objectively and ask them, you know, whether there's really evidence behind all of those assumptions? I have a I have a photo on my phone from when I was reading your chapter discussing self-distancing as you're practicing there. Mm, so yeah. when you were talking about would my friend say the same thing to me or would I give this advice to my friend that that's kind of like a it's a big Jordan Petersonism. I think one of the second rules in his first book, 12 Rules for Life, was talking about don't like like don't treat yourself the way that you wouldn't treat a friend. Like, so would you say to your friend, Oh, you're always falling off your diet, or you never stick to the things that you or want to talk oh, about? We're, right. we're, we're recording this in January. Oh, you never stick to New Year's resolutions, you're so useless. You probably yeah. wouldn't say that to a friend. So to turn that in on yourself and be so harmful to yourself is such a remarkable, strange thing that's maintained throughout human history that we continue to do this. And it's really, really taking a lot of self-work in this modern age to try and work our ways away from that. And self-distancing, as you said, where there's like a, and this is one of my favorite things I went from another guest, Dr. Aria, there's the stimulus, there's a gap, and then there's a response. But for me, learning about things like the expectation effect, I can fill that gap with useful information that allows me to interpret my feelings in a better way and then choose for what my response is going to be a lot more wisely off the back of that. and. That's why like, sometimes I like to piece together different things that I've learned from guests and build up almost this like repertoire of things that I use to deal with particular situations. And anything that allows somebody to visually process that when they're driving in the car or in the gym or wherever they are listening to this is huge for me, David. And that's why I'm so appreciative of your work. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, that's really what I think we all want is that kind of toolkit that you mentioned where there's multiple different ways of interpreting the situation that we're in. And, um, you know, I try to emphasize this in the expectation effect as well, which is that it's like, sometimes, you know, people will find it difficult to apply one kind of technique, like, so we shouldn't beat ourselves up about that. It's not like if you're doing like a new presentation at work, and you are getting really nervous, and you're really struggling to see the adaptive benefit in that, that you don't then have to feel guilty, because like, you're finding it difficult to apply the expectation effect, you can turn to some other um strategy instead like i would maybe turn to self-compassion um you know huge there's a huge amount of research showing that self-compassion is really important for our mental health um and so i would just yeah like try to tell myself even if i feel nervous like that is also totally acceptable you know millions of people would feel exactly the same way it's actually just a part of the you know, um, it's part of being human is that sometimes like your emotions are going to feel overwhelming, but you don't have to like beat yourself up about that either. So yeah, I really think that's important. Just accumulate throughout your life as many of these mental tools as you can. Stress is an area that we've managed to go deep on so far in the conversation, but you looked at so many other areas. One of the ones that was most interesting to me was around diet. And you've already mentioned there that when we're thinking of our favorite foods, our body starts to almost prepare itself to have that food and enjoy that food. What else did you find in that space? Yeah, loads. I mean, so uh, there's one study from the 1970s that I love, which um, looked at women with anemia. And um, basically, it was a Swedish and a Thai cohort. And what they found was that they could either give people on the, like the uh, Thai women, they could give like their own food or the Swedish food or um, just this really nasty kind of mush, uh, whereas like the nutrients were just all blitzed together. So it's a bit like baby food. Um, and they did the same for the Swedish women. Um, now, nutritionally, all the meals they were receiving were identical. Um, but what they found was that the women absorbed the most amount of iron from the meal 
that they preferred that was culturally relevant to them. So if it be Thai women, you know, if it was a, a delicious Thai curry, they um, got the most nutritional benefit from that. But the Swedish uh, women, it was going to be, um, I can't remember what they had. I don't think it was like a burger, but, you know, it was um, kind of typical Western food. But um, And that just kind of really spoke to me about the need to... Um, to maintain our pleasure and excitement about what we're eating. So even if you're on a diet, even if you're trying to control your calories, you still, you shouldn't think that pleasure is an, an essential ingredient. You need to be celebrating life with the meals that you eat. Um, and then there's all of this research showing that actually that's the best way to lose weight as well, because your hormonal response to the food depends on the kind of pleasure and satisfaction that you're expecting to receive from that. So if you see a meal as being a real treat, um, your levels of the hormone ghrelin, which stimulates hunger, they're much more likely to fall after you've eaten compared to if you eat something that is quite, you know, you think of it as being quite bland. Uh, you might think it's kind of healthy for you, but you don't think it's delicious. Um, when you eat that kind of food, like the ghrelin kind of doesn't change so much. So it's really counterproductive because then you still feel hungry and you're going to kind of reach for the cookie jar later on. I find it so fascinating because Grenolin is a, a ghrelin, sorry, is a hormone that I was aware of through numerous times doing different diets for like um, bodybuilding photo shoots and, and dieting down to my leanest possible level. And I knew that as I got leaner, my ghrelin was, was higher. But understanding that I can actually manage that through my expectations of how filling or how tasty a food is going to be is so, so important. And I've always found the easiest I've found to stick to a diet is not necessarily to include foods that are always traditionally seen as oh that's a real health food but to include foods that i enjoy but still meet my calorie intake my macronutrient profile that i'm striving for but that yeah. i enjoy eating in the process so say for example I, I quite like broccoli but i absolutely hate green beans well i'm gonna have the broccoli but the equivalent calorie amount is the green beans but not just because oh green beans are meant to be a better bodybuilding food and you're thinking okay well it doesn't really matter because as long as i come away from that meal more satisfied or more content and my expectation is that I'm going to be happy after it. I'm going to be in a much better position to maintain my diet and my structure and not go and snack and do whatever it is off the back of it. And when you like kind of joined that together for me, I was just sitting thinking that makes an awful lot of sense when it comes to dietary adherence as well. Mm, yeah, exactly. I'm totally with you. We're preferring broccoli to green beans, by the way. But, um, but you know, they, these are personal choices and they're what we have to make ourselves um but the temptation yeah especially if you're kind of following this new kind of diet fad is to just like eat things that you actually find disgusting but just because you believe they're going to bring you the greatest benefit for whatever you're wanting to achieve whether that's weight loss or muscle gain um but actually like there's nothing wrong you're not going to be punished for it for having a food that is slightly less like um nutritionally beneficial um if you really enjoy it and you're more likely to stick to that diet so it's finding the balance but i think uh all too often we we forget about the pleasure component and we only focus on kind of what objectively uh we're getting from the food equally one of the studies that you shared was around um how france has better health outcomes than the uk and the us despite eating relatively similar but also a higher level of saturated fat which is linked with cardiac health challenges but a lot is to do with their interpretation of the foods that they eat. Can we go into that in a little bit more detail, David? Uh, yeah, so that's the famous French paradox. And there's been loads of kind of theories about why that might be. Like um, one popular theory was that it's because of the wine that French people drink. Um, so, <laughs> you know, we'd, I mean, I'm not dismissing that totally because we know that wine does have kind of useful antioxidants that um, might be beneficial in kind of smaller doses. Um but I think what's also more telling is the attitudes to food. And so, like, you know, if you give these kind of questionnaires and you ask um, kind of French people or American people kind of what what words do you associate with cake? Um, for French people, the um, most likely answer was, like, celebration. Um, for American people, it was guilt. Um, similarly, if you kind of ask them, you know, what do you think of... Um, uh, vegetables like french people would answer delicious um americans people would be like a uh, healthy or something um and so i think like that that attitude is really important for what we're talking about which is that you can take pleasure in all kinds of foods so you can find health like traditionally healthy foods like um 
delicious and you can get that satisfaction from those. But when you treat yourself, you don't also kind of wallow in guilt either, that you actually, you just accept that that was like something to celebrate at the time, but that you don't have to then beat yourself up about afterwards. Because as you've explained, your hormonal response after that meal will be different, despite the fact that you've had the same food as the person sitting next to you, their hormonal response may be different based on their interpretation of what they were expecting thereafter. And that's where there's always a line between this kind of pseudoscience that people come up with in terms of like, um, oh, this calorie is radically different from this calorie. And and there is some merit in in, in that discussion. But if you are predisposing your body to deal with the food that you're eating in a different way, then of course you're going to respond differently. You're going to potentially process it differently. You're going to behave differently from, and behavioral was, was one of the key mechanisms you mentioned. Your behavior, two hours, three hours, four hours, the day after will be different based on your interpretation of, what you've just eaten yeah that's exactly it um and so say if we look at that kind of response to like eating a slice of cake um we can actually see the expectation effect occurring kind of before during and after we've had that so beforehand there are studies showing that if you really think carefully and kind of visualize and imagine how much pleasure you're going to get from a slice of chocolate cake um the more you kind of really appreciate that the you're actually more likely to take a smaller slice than someone who hasn't really thought much about kind of what the experience of having the cake is going to be. It's just that you you recognize that you don't need so much to get the pleasure that you want. Like you might actually recognize that a bigger slice is only going to make you feel kind of sick um, and overly full. So already actually accepting the pleasure of food can limit your calorie intake. And then as we've discussed, like actually getting a lot of satisfaction from that food can change things like the ghrelin levels. So afterwards, you're going to feel uh, more full up, even though you had a smaller slice of cake. Um, and then I think there's the component of like whether you feel guilt or not, uh, having had that cake. Um, there's this phenomenon in psychology called the what the hell effect, which is that if you're on a diet and you break your diet, you know, just in one instance, by having a slice of cake, um, lots of people are more likely then to just kind of break the diet again and again and again. It kind of cascades um, because of those feelings of guilt reduce their sense of self-efficacy. The It kind of creates this self-fulfilling prophecy where they just think, oh, I don't have any self-control, so I might as well just kind of give up entirely. If you see that slice of cake as not being something to give you guilt, but actually like as a treat that you can there was like a reward, you can celebrate it. It's like a one-off event. Um, you're more likely to just kind of account for that later on, maybe eating less for your dinner. Um, you'll stick to your diet for far longer. And that's also really important. So actually there we're seeing you know, changes in perception, behavior, and physiology, and it's all helping us in our goal to lose weight. It's a, it's a great example, as you say, and you are completely correct. If you don't choose to move forward and you throw the baby out with the bathwater and you either behave in a really restrictive and negative way afterwards, you're going to reinforce those kind of binge and restrict um, behaviors that yeah. we see in many eating disorders. But also you may just decide, as you say, just hit the fuck it button and you just you just eat everything in sight for the, for, 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 the next, for the next few weeks and you just fall off your diet until you kind of stumble back onto it and there's going to be no progress through that as well food obviously links very heavily to exercise and i was fascinated with the impact that even just your beliefs had on your exercise versus genetics yeah i mean again that was one of these studies when i read it i thought well this is you know there's much more to this than what people assume um when you talk about expectation effects um and so yeah essentially this lab in Stanford in the US, they uh, kind of gave people a real genetics test, uh, but they gave them sham feedback. So some people were told they had the kind of, in in quotation marks, the good version of the CREB1 gene, which we do know can kind of make exercise feel a bit easier. You'll kind of, you don't, uh, your body doesn't get so hot while you're exercising. It's been associated with endurance. Um, others were told that they, had the kind of bad versions so that they would find exercise harder. Um, it was all like they recorded the real results, but the feedback was sham. So, you know, people were receiving the wrong information. Um, and what they found then when they got these people to do an endurance test on a treadmill was that the expectations had an effect 
independent of the actual genes they were carrying. And sometimes the the effects of the um, expectations were more than the genes themselves. Um, so that was true, not just with things like the the endur total endurance, you know, how long they stayed on the treadmill, but things like the gas exchange within the lungs. Um, people who had the positive expectations tend to have more efficient gas exchange of um, carbon dioxide and oxygen. So it was having a real effect on how their bodies were responding to the physical activity. And importantly, the people that were, their lungs were performing better, quite often there was a crossover in terms of those were people that genetically weren't predisposed to do that in the same way that somebody who performed poorly and their lungs were less efficient. Actually, if they had the genetic test and the correct results would have seen that their genetics were predisposed to perform better in that environment. So our bodies were limiting ourselves based on feedback they were told in advance of partaking in the study. Yeah, that's it. So it was the the feedback here was affecting them independently of what genes they were carrying. So like you said, someone with like the not so good gene, but the positive feedback um, would have ended up performing better than someone with the a great version of the gene, but the negative feedback. Um, so, you know, it does show that our expectations can be enhancing or limiting. And I think that's, you know, that is a concern for me when people are getting these genetic tests, that actually they, we might be over overemphasizing how much um, our genes really matter, which could create negative uh, expectation effects and self-fulfilling prophecies, as well as you know, potentially the positive ones. Um, so we need to be aware of that when we're interpreting these results. There's been a big rise in wearable fitness trackers. Uh, Whoop is one of the most popular ones, and mm. it gives you a score on your sleep, your recovery, and your strain. I wonder how many people are perhaps falling into a trap of if their strain is high from the previous day or their recovery is low, that their training may become almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy in terms of I'm not going to train as well today or I'm going to really struggle when in the reality, their body could probably still do some elements of the positive um, training that they wanted to do, but maybe just a little bit less, but they might take it way down from what they were actually physically capable of just because they've told themselves and the data has reinforced that. Yeah, yeah. It's a worry that I have. Like, um, I've got a smartwatch, which, like, uh, isn't, like, so sophisticated, but even with that, you know, it's like... Um, I think it's easy to, when you get the feedback to kind of again, to catastrophize that, you know, if it looks like I had like a bad day for my like, you know, physical activity, or like it's telling me that my cardio recovery was worse um, than I'd hoped it would be, then, you know, I don't even know how accurate that data is. Like maybe it's just noise rather than being something that's like, you know, to be taken totally seriously. Um, but I think if you're not aware of the expectation effect at all, the risk is that, yeah, you're going to be just believing this and it could like really set you down that kind of negative path and especially I think with sleep trackers you know there's a lot of research on um kind of the expectation expectation effect with sleep and and the worry is that if you become too obsessed with your sleep quality and you start catastrophizing even the smallest amounts of sleep loss like even you know waking up for 15 minutes in the middle of the night um that's actually having a negative effect the the expectations themselves are having a negative effect on all kinds of parameters in the day so things like your uh you know your mood your fatigue sense of fatigue how are you doing cognitive tests it's also then creating like extra strain when you're trying to get to sleep the next night and might actually contribute to further insomnia so yeah we have to be really careful not to allow ourselves to go into that negative cycle yeah uh, you you were saying in the book that some insomniacs if they start to believe they have insomnia then they start to have symptoms which reflect that of an insomniac even if they if you regardless of all the tests that happen on them they, they appear to not have insomnia right yeah so these are called complaining good sleepers and you can put them in like a sleep lab measure their sleep they probably get you know seven or eight hours like easily enough to function um but they still report all of these daytime symptoms like um fatigue brain fog. uh yeah brain fog yeah exactly you know they're really uh higher rates of depression you know all of these things that you would associate with insomnia and actually you know the only thing that really seemed to depend on how much sleep you had um, independently of the expectations was the effects of insomnia on blood pressure. 
But even then, it was only if you had insomnia and you had the negative views of your sleep that you were more likely to have the elevated blood pressure. You could actually have people who had pretty bad sleep, but kind of were quite sanguine about that fact, and they were still less likely to have the elevated blood pressure. So, you know, it's quite remarkable. But it's really, there it is the combination of the two, that that's the potent mix. But, um, as one of the, the scientists told me, he said that um, our worries about sleep is a stronger pathogen than sleep loss itself. It's amazing. And I certainly think it's been positive to see people have more of a focus on sleep quality. And there's there's a lot of data out there that suggests that as you start to lose sleep, it can have a significant impact on your lifespan, your quality of life, et cetera, et cetera. But if you really get tied up in one bad night's sleep causing all these after effects, then you actually get into bed the night before and, and, and worry about it. And one of the big things for me is I know that if I have, say, an earlier alarm than I normally have set for myself, so say I'm going to get the train to Manchester or London and an alarm set for five o'clock rather than my normal six, six thirty, I toss and turn in bed so much more and sleep much less. And then the next day, I don't know how much longer I've been awake for because I try not to look at my phone. I try not to look at devices during that time. But I, I I see that I'm feeling just a little bit less less on the on point, a little bit more reliant on caffeine to hit my normal levels of enthusiasm and extroversion, David. And I really think right. there's a lot to that because my mind is worried that I'm gonna get less sleep. And then guess what? I end up getting less sleep because I'm I'm tossing and turning worried that I'm gonna sleep through my alarm, which I've never ever done in my entire life. Yeah, no, exactly. Like I have the same thing. And um so when I was researching the book, one of the things that um the strategies that I really liked and have tried um, when I'm experiencing something like that. And it's um, called having paradoxical intentions. So if you're really tossing and turning and you just can't get to sleep, like you just decide, fine, I'm going to try to stay awake. Like, um, so, you know, it's not just like kind of waking up and reading or whatever, but you might just even while you're lying there in bed, you're like, no, I'm just going to like keep my mind active. Like I'm not going to allow myself to sleep. And like, this is why it's paradoxical because actually as soon as people start doing that, um, the opposite happens and they start, they kind of relax into falling to sleep. So, yeah, it's just that kind of question of, um, you know, I guess fighting fire with fire, like it just um, takes some of the pressure off of you and actually then that's what helps you to achieve your goal in the end. I think it's the removal of the pressure, as you say, because you start to downregulate yeah. and one of the most important things for sleep is you're getting out of that kind of heightened state and trying to get into a parasympathetic state and trying to downregulate the body. Right, yeah, exactly. So I often find actually, if I can find like a useful task that I'll do when I'm like trying to get to sleep, um, so I don't feel like I'm wasting my time if I have insomnia. So it could be something like if I'm, you know, writing a new chapter of a book or whatever, and I'm like, well, fine, I'm awake, I can't get to sleep. So I'll just sit here kind of thinking about, you know, how to plan that chapter, like, or, you know, who I need to call. Um, then that often does the job. Like it, um, ironically it just makes um, me fall off to sleep like within about five or ten minutes yeah it's brilliant and one of the things i want to ask about was was supplementation and one of the things that stood out for me was the was the cyclist that was told he was getting a performance enhancing drug to improve his performance but in fact it was i think it was just insulin he was um like no not insulin sorry a uh, glucose that he was receiving what happened right, there yeah. yeah so this was um uh richard Furonc, um apologies for the french accent who um so it was in the tour de france um in the late 90s and you know like um doping was like really prevalent and especially with the french team um but he had heard of this kind of new substance that was going around and even his um his coach who was not averse to doping was like um i don't want you like right before the, the race to try a totally unknown drug um so he he kind of got the kind of pusher to come um to the room but then replaced the the actual substance with like the with this um injection of glucose like you said um just like injected it into Barunk's bum um and then allowed him to go and do the race and uh Barunk, like beat his previous records he was like you know told his his coach that was amazing that was the best thing i've ever had like um it was like the time trial of my life um and of course it was it was completely innocuous. There's no way glucose could have changed his performance um, in the quantities that he was given. It was just his power of belief. Um, but that, you know, the research shows that a lot of the 
benefits of um, performance enhancing drugs, um, sports supplements in general, often do come from um, expectations. I mean, like caffeine, for example, with weightlifting, um, you know, what they found was that actually you could give someone caffeine um, and tell them it was a placebo and it had no benefit but their weightlifting. Similarly, you could give someone um, decaffeinated coffee, um, like a really strong, uh, uh, strong tasting espresso that was decaffeinated. And they performed as if they'd actually had the real thing, like there was really no difference between the performance. Yeah, it's it's amazing to see that. And along kind of linked to that was um, the the study around cleaners and exercise because, again, that priming that they needed to get better results, it really shows the power of the mind because this is far from a an elite level athlete like the the, the Tour de France cyclist. It's actually just people that were cleaning in a hotel. Right. Yeah. And this is what I think is also important with like. Um... Uh, understanding expectation effects is that like, yeah, it could be really important, like if you're hoping to win like a gold medal, but actually, I think what is equally important is getting someone who's been a couch potato like off the couch, and, you know, to enjoy exercise. And that's exactly what we were seeing with these um, hotel cleaners. So um, the fact was that like, cleaning is like really physically intensive, like, you know, lifting beds, um, doing the vacuuming, cleaning the windows, um, you know, it burns easily enough uh, calories to meet the Surgeon General's advice for like how much exercise you need to get. Like, you know, I think it's like 150 minutes of um, uh, kind of light uh, to moderate exercise each week. You know, they're easily doing that, but they just don't see, they don't interpret their jobs as being a form of physical exercise. Like to these cleaners, and I think to most people, like going exercise is like going to the gym, running on a treadmill, lifting weights, it's not just doing your day-to-day job. Um, so these scientists, they just, they were at Harvard University and they just wanted to kind of educate the cleaners about that fact. So there was no deception, but they were just saying like, here are the facts, you're actually getting enough exercise each week. Um, so they did that at four hotels and then at the other hotels, they just kind of, that was the control group, the cleaners weren't given this extra reassuring information. And then a month later, they visited to see if there were any uh, physical changes, and there were. Um, on average, the cleaners had kind of been on the cusp of having hypertension um, at the start of the study. Uh, by the end, you know, their blood pressure had fallen significantly, so they would no longer be diagnosed with high blood pressure. Um, similarly, they seemed to lose a couple of pounds, um, you know, and when they were questioned, it's not like they had suddenly started going to the gym. Like, there didn't seem to be any behavioral changes. They weren't hadn't changed their diet. It did just seem to be this kind of expectation effect. Um, we have to be a bit skeptical of just one study like that, but actually then there was a, a similar but very large longitudinal study that essentially just asked people, like, how good do you feel about the amount of physical activity you're getting? Like, Do you think you're getting more than the average person, the same as the average person or less. And then they tracked their health over, I think it was a period of seven years. Um, they also, had, some of them had accelerometers, you know, like I guess like Fitbits or whatever that were measuring their real physical activity. And they had detailed questionnaires to, to, to check, you know, what their lifestyles were like. Um, what they found was that people's beliefs about their physical, how much physical activity they were getting, predicted their mortality of things like cardiovascular disease independently of how much exercise they were actually getting. So you could have someone who was really not doing that much exercise, but who really thought they were being physically active, had a better outcome than the opposite, someone who was doing a lot of exercise, but always felt like they just weren't getting enough. That's huge, isn't it? Because so many people have a negative relationship with exercise, whether they were growing up and they didn't feel it was something they were good at or didn't enjoy and they just continue to shy away from it because their expectation is that they're going to to hate it. And I think one of the things that you spoke about was like maybe somebody starts running, running on the running on the treadmill and they're like, oh my God, I'm I I despise this. I feel terrible. I feel faint. I feel sick. I feel unwell. And guess what? They don't push through any of that inertia to reach a level of improvement, which would allow them to reap some of the benefits of exercise. And that for me is an encouraging part, as you said, to maybe get somebody off the couch who's really struggled, maybe he's put on a lot of weight, very, very, very obese and really struggling for their health outcomes. They're more likely if they have an expectation that, yes, it's going to be challenging at first, but I'm going to get better and I'm going to see improvements. And this feeling of 
pain is actually a relatively good thing and it'll start to decrease over time as I gain some form of mastery over this area and I actually put some time into it. I think that for me is quite an encouraging piece of data that should make somebody be a little bit more empowered about what they might expect to get from exercise. Yeah, exactly. Because um, I think, again, it's a question of kind of catastrophizing what we're feeling. And I think if you're not used to exercise, then, um, you know, like it can be quite scary when you're feeling breathless and your your heart's racing. And again, it can turn into this kind of um, quite brutal, toxic kind of internal monologue where you're kind of telling yourself like you're not capable and, you know, like you could even, you know, start telling yourself you're kind of disgusting or feel shame for the kind of state that you're in um but actually like we should be appraising whatever level of fitness we're at you know when you are like go undergoing some kind of physical strain that's good for the body like it's actually that is what's building our strength and stamina and just recognizing that fact like whatever however fast you're going um whatever state you're currently in if you're pushing your body to its current limits then that's what you need to do to kind of get on that positive trajectory. Um, and alongside that, we just need to stop ourselves, stop comparing ourselves to other people. So really focus on our own journey rather than, you know, looking at like Instagram kind of inspiration or whatever, because there's always going to be someone who um, is a bit fitter than you, you know, seems to be achieving more than you. Um, and what the research shows is that if you're constantly doing that upward comparison, that's making you degrade your opinions of your own abilities. So it's creating that negative expectation effect. And we really want to avoid that. Many of the studies that you shared had me like really intrigued straight away and almost questioning how is that how is that possible? But the one that really stood out was the difference in how long somebody would live based on the mm -hmm. expectation effect. What did you find there? Yeah, I mean, that was kind of, that was one of those that I really initially I like didn't believe like I was very skeptical but then the more I dug into the science I saw actually you know multiple studies across the world you know multiple teams all like credible scientists you know it's really um it's really robust and it's like very plausible science once you look at the kind of mechanisms but yeah uh, there was a study from 2002 which basically asked some middle-aged people like what do you expect to happen as you get older um do you think your life is going to get better worse or stay the same and what they found was that those with the positive expectations of getting older lived for about seven and a half years longer than the people who had the negative expectations. And they controlled for all other factors. So it wasn't just that, say, you know, people who were quite ill already at middle age had the negative expectations, which you might, you know, reasonably, that was a good hypothesis. But actually, when you control for that, it didn't, like, reduce the size of the effect. So it wasn't just... Um, a kind of statistical artifact. Um, and then they, you know, they just replicated this in so many different populations, you know, uh, tens of thousands of people. Um, and they found that it's not just kind of overall longevity, it's things like the risk of getting Alzheimer's disease. Like you, even, uh, like regardless of your genetic risk, like even if you have some of those um, genetic variants that put you at a high risk of Alzheimer's, if you have a positive view of aging if you associate it with things like wisdom and um continued independence and and you really appreciate the positives that come with aging those people were much less likely to get alzheimer's disease than the people who had the negative views um so then the question is well how could that work um one mechanism is behavior and that probably is a factor that if you have a positive view of aging you're more likely to kind of look after your body because you want to have the healthiest um, life that you can as you as you get older. Um, but equally, it seems to be to do with the way we appraise the challenges around us. So if you you think that as you get old, it's, you're going to become more vulnerable, um, it kind of makes all of the challenges you face a bit more scary. So, you know, going to the shops, suddenly you're worried that you're going to have a fall um, or that you'll forget your way. Um, you're going to stop kind of doing you know, uh, kind of new things because you, you're you worried that, and you'll stop using your memory, you'll start relying, say, on GPS rather than um, trying to memorize the route to a new place. Um, you know, all of those anxieties that you can build up as you start to feel that you're becoming more vulnerable, that changes things like the um, level of cortisol. So we see that that 
for people with the negative views of aging, cortisol actually increases after retirement, whereas for people with the positive view of aging, it kind of decreases because people are kind of settling into their new life. Um, that is then associated with things like inflammation. And we know that chronic inflammation causes bodily wear and tear. And then we can even see the effects down to kind of the epigenetic changing within the cells. So for all of these factors, the heightened cortisol, the heightened inflammation, you're actually seeing more genetic damage and um, kind of age-related uh, epigenetic changes. So it's actually causing the kind of biological clock to tick a little bit faster. If you it's have the negative isn't it? It, it, is, yeah. it is remarkable that you can age yourself more. And it shouldn't surprise everyone. Everyone should understand that negative use of stress is likely to lead to you, you aging. Like you see people who get, they maybe call it frown lines or worry lines or whatever it is. Think about what's happening on the inside of your body when you're maybe in that kind of headspace and that kind of um, mindset at all times. But like seven years, like that in the UK, that's about 8% of like an extra 8% of your life that you'd be right. living for if you have a more positive view of aging, like one of the terms that springs to mind is like aging gracefully or maturing and like growing into yourself or um, I'm becoming more wise or I'm becoming more worldly. All these things are like positive terms, whereas I'm becoming, as, as you were maybe explaining, like more reliant, more anxious, less capable, less able to look after myself. And these are all things that have this really negative connotation. So you can see why somebody who flips the switch on those is much more likely to age in a way that they feel more healthy, they look after themselves off the back of it, and they have like a view towards their longevity as well. As you said, behaviorally, if you believe you're going to live to 85, 90, whatever it is, and, and beyond, you're more likely to maybe tick those boxes like financially and with your health that you know you're going to be there around for that point. Right, exactly. And I think the two kind of the physiological and the behavioral mechanisms actually interact. So if you... um like if you have the kind of if you have lower levels of cortisol lower levels of inflammation you're probably just going to feel a bit healthier a bit more spry uh and then that's going to make you feel like more capable of doing the physical activity and then doing the physical activity is going to actually help to you know reduce inflammation and cortisol further so it's actually you know the two are working in tandem there but what you don't want to do is to if you have that negative view um you know you've got everything working against you it's like your behavior's um not going to be so good for um uh kind of preparing your body for the challenges that you face and then mentally you're not as capable of facing them as well um and again i'm not suggesting that we have to be these kinds of um deceptive kind of delusional pollyannas um where we're ignoring the fact that you know aging isn't always like a bed of roses like you know there are some heightened risks that come with um, your later years. But it's just also recognizing that, like you said, like your wisdom increases. Like That is actually scientifically proven that older people, um, often their decision-making is much better. They're able to see situations more objectively with uh, greater open-mindedness. Their general knowledge is, you know, at, at its peak, really, uh, when you reach your 70s, um, your vocabulary, your expressive ability peaks in your 70s and 80s, you know, there's all of these ways that actually you have these kinds of superpowers that have come from your lifetime of experience. And just recognizing that, while also recognizing that, you know, you might face some challenges, I think it's that kind of more nuanced uh, picture that we really need to be aiming for. I completely agree. I think that would, for somebody who's not properly engaged with your work, they might see it as just purely in praise of positive thinking, like almost like a related to things like the secret law of attraction, et cetera, which I know you rail against, but I can completely see that it's, it's a, it's a positive realism and trying to view things in a way that serves you in the future rather than like always blue sky thinking, because anyone that runs around with just blue sky thinking, they're going to get burnt at some point because they're not taking the necessary precautions to, to experience life. But I can completely see that if you employ the expectation effect and understand that, there's the ability for you to view things positively and to move forward in a way that behaviorally, physiologically, and in terms of your perception of things is a more positive way than our, we're kind of programmed at this moment in time to think negatively. That's That's got to have downstream positive effects. And I think we've, we've named so many of them today and we've only scratched the surface. 
Right, yeah, that's exactly what I'm trying to emphasize is that I think a lot of us are reflexively pessimistic. And in our culture, we have this kind of assumption that almost like cynicism and pessimism is by default the more rational state to be in. But actually, being like overly pessimistic is no more rational than being overly optimistic. We want that kind of sweet spot where we're accepting both, but we're we're making sure that we're not having that overly negative interpretation of events, that our mind still remains open to, you know, like the big picture, which I think is what I found when I, you know, first discovered the expectation effect when I was undergoing, um, you know, those terrible headaches caused by the pills I was taking. And it wasn't like I was suddenly denying that the pain existed. I was just opening my mind to the possibility that it might not be inevitable and that actually it might vanish you know, with time if I let it. And it did do just by opening my mind to that possibility without me, you know, visualizing myself on a beach or kind of repeating this positive mantra. It was just the scientific knowledge. So, you know, with the expectation effect, I really do think that often just knowledge is power and we can still try to be as objective as possible. Agreed, David. It's a really empowering note for us to wrap up on. And I'm sure people are going to want to continue the conversation with you. If they would like to, where should they head towards? Uh, cool. So my um, website is davidrobson.me. Um, I'm on X as D underscore A underscore Robson. Um, there's my Instagram feed, which is uh, David A. Robson. And I'm also on um, Instagram's threads if you want to follow me there. Bright stuff. Those will be linked in the show notes. David, I cannot advocate your, your book enough and I'm sure we'll get another conversation at some point to talk about your upcoming work. But thank you to you and thank you to you, the listener. I'll be back to speak to you all again very, very soon.